Hey guys, what's up? Hope you guys are having a great day today and welcome back for another episode of the Matthew Spazzuti program where we talk about financial freedom and economics. Ladies and gentlemen, hope you guys are having a great week so far. Uh, so far my week, it, well, it's a, I'm recording this on a Monday. You guys are more than likely listening to it uh, the weekend after, but you know, hope your week went well and hope your weekend is going great. So I was trying to think of what I wanted to talk about today. Past couple of weeks, I've had stuff that I, I really wanted to talk about and well, frankly, I just... I don't know. I was having a hard time thinking about it, but luckily, whenever I have a hard time thinking about topics, I have, I always defer to my podcast topic list. So if you guys have ever done a podcast before, or if you're a writer, you, you do blogging or maybe YouTube videos, you know that you constantly have to do content creation. It's, it's very much a vicious cycle, right? You know, you're always working on content creation and it can be difficult to constantly come up with new ideas of new content that you want to create that's uh, new, original, and, you know, isn't really repetitive to what you guys have already done. But a lot of times, you'll have wonderful ideas. Like, if you're anything like me, you'll have great ideas at the worst possible moments. Like, when you're watching a movie or when you're watching a TV show or just going throughout your day. And if you don't write those ideas down, then you you totally will forget about them the next day. This is my issue. I have ideas all the time of what I want to do podcast episodes of. Sometimes it's me talking with my wife about a particular subject that leads me to think of something else, or maybe it, I want to talk about the subject we were talking about on the podcast, or or sometimes it's I'm watching a TV show. It, there's a whole host of ideas that come up in my head throughout my day and throughout my week, and I know that if I don't write the stuff down, I'm not going to remember it at all. And the next day will come and I'll be like, oh yeah, I remember I had a really great idea, but freaking A, wouldn't you know it, I didn't write it down and now I don't know what to talk about. This happens all the time. So whenever I have these ideas, I write them down and sometimes I just keep them in reserve. I hold them in reserves so that if there ever comes a week where I don't know what I want to talk about, there's nothing really going on on the news or anything that I I honestly care to talk about. I mean, there's always stuff that's going on, but currently... There's not a lot that I want to talk about. Yes, there's a lot of executive orders that the new administration has been doing, uh, which is very undemocratic, which is always the inevitable outcome of democracy. Democracies always end in a very, very undemocratic way, <laughs> rather ironically, if you think about it. But, you know, anyways, so, you know, there's that that's going on. There's stimulus bills that they're they're trying to propose stimulus or trying to propose regulation, you know, same song and dance over and over and over again. More money's being printed. Yes, it's it's not good. It's not healthy for the economy. I, I yeah. You know, same song and dance, right? Well, I've I thought about talking about inflation and having a whole episode dedicated to inflation and not just to talk about what inflation is, while that's a that's a very important topic, but you know, also to talk about what's coming down the road right? What are things that are coming down the road with our prices going to rise? Are they going to fall? What's coming down the road and whatnot? And I thought about talking about that and I thought that'd be a great, a, a really, really great topic and whatnot to talk about, you know, to try to, if nothing else, I love talking about economics. You guys know that if you've been here for any length of time, you know, I have a huge passion for economics, particularly Austrian economics to be specific. And, you know, but anyways, with, with that said, I, I really thought about talking about this subject and, you know, for a while I was kind of thinking, no, I think I'm just going to talk about, my, you know, a topic that I have in my notes and all that kind of stuff. But then I decide, you know what? I don't know. Inflation sounds like a fun thing to talk about. Let's go ahead and talk about it. You know, it's, I think it's going to be something that everybody needs to be aware of that's going on this year and, and the coming years. You know, there's a lot of money that's being printed and being injected into the economy, being circulated, which is incredibly important when it comes to the general increase in prices, which is not 
Inflation, by the way. So let's go ahead and talk about that. What is inflation? Okay, we've defined it many times on the show. And if you want to know about inflation, you know, we've talked about it on the show before. You know, the Federal Reserve has been talking about making inflation easier. This is what they always do. They start talking about what they want to do. In the next coming years, they actually end up doing it. Right. It's more like them signaling what's going to happen, not necessarily what they want to happen. And it's really only a matter of time. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a year or two years out, but this happens all the time. Well, guess what? The Fed is talking about coming up with an app that has every single citizen download. And the main idea is they have these unemployment bonds or whatever that have no money in them that are inside of these apps that they can ultimately press a button and fill up with money and send it directly to you at the drop of a hat. And that was basically the the whole crux of that entire episode is we talked about how that's what the Fed wants to do. And that is something that we do need to be concerned about going forward, you know, because if that was to occur, what it inevitably will do is cause monetary devaluation because I think it's more accurate to what's really going on. The monetary, when I say monetary, that means money. Okay, I would imagine that's pretty self-explanatory. But so when I'm saying about monetary devaluation, what I'm talking about is money not being worth what it was before. And as a result, what that typically means is prices are rising. Prices of goods and services are rising. That's what I classify as monetary devaluation. Now, what inflation is, it's an increase in the monetary supply. Okay. It's incredibly important that you understand this because if you don't, if you think that inflation is an increase in prices, a general increase in prices to be specific, if that's what you believe, then anybody could come up to you and blame all kinds of things for inflation. But in reality, inflation only really is created in one way. And that one way is increasing the money supply that exists in an economy. That's what inflation is. And there's only a handful of ways that that can happen. It's almost all government related. Fractional reserve banking is absolutely a cause of this. You know, we got checking accounts today where you put your money in and you hold it there so that you can spend it later, right? It's supposed to be highly liquid, highly sellable, right? So you could sell that money you and exchange that money for other goods and services. You know, that's one way to think about it. But that money is not supposed to be lended out. And yet it is. These are called, I believe, demand accounts is is how they're referred to in economics. They're demand accounts. So historically, how a bank would normally run is they would effectively incentivize you through high interest rates to deposit money with them, and then they would subsequently lend that money out in the form of loans, okay? They would offer high interest rates to attract savers to their banks, and they also offer a safe place to store your money where it would not be easily stolen. And that used to be kind of how it went. But typically, there was always some form of collateral that you had to put up in order to get the loan or things of that nature. But when it came to banking, that's how banking was done. Unfortunately, banking is done differently today. While they still want you to give them your money in the form of savings, they're no longer incentivized due to government manipulation, due to the Federal Reserve manipulation, which is basically a banking cartel. The Federal Reserve is actually not a government institution. It's just named the Federal Reserve to kind of hoodwink you into thinking that it's something that's tied to the government. And it's not. It's actually a completely private institution. It is heavily influenced by politics. It's heavily influenced by political, by politicians and government. But it is technically speaking, technically speaking, 
it is a private institution. You can think about it as being something akin to like a private bank, right? It's a, it's a, it's a private bank, meaning it's not run by the government. But the difference with this bank is it's a bank that is composed of all the largest banks in the country. That's what it is. It's a central bank, right? So you got all these different banks, massive national and even global banks that have executives that serve on the board of the Federal Reserve. That's what the Federal Reserve is. Now, before you start saying, oh, Matthew, we need to bring it under regulation. We need to, we need to bring it under more government, you know, government oversight and all this kind of stuff. Look, that would only make matters worse or it wouldn't improve the situation at all. It certainly wouldn't make matters better. Okay. The fact of the matter is that the the Federal Reserve is already heavily influenced by government, and it, it, they just already are. The, the, so you're not going to decrease government influence over the Federal Reserve by bringing the Federal Reserve under more oversight or anything of that nature. That's not going to happen. But on that topic of inflation, right? How does inflation really work? So we've already mentioned how inflation is an increase in the monetary supply, but a lot of people think it's an increase in prices. Well, largely this is because of a very, very poor job that universities are doing in teaching it. They're teaching a very Keynesian way of looking at economics and subsequently inflation. And unfortunately, that's just the nature of the world that we live in today. So the vast majority of educational institutions that are out there are not teaching the appropriate way of looking at it. And this is by design. Because you see, if you truly knew that inflation is purely done through the increase in the monetary supply, and that's what inflation is, it lays the blame for why life keeps getting more and more expensive and harder and harder and harder. It makes it a lot easier to lay the blame on the right people. Okay, banks, they do fractional reserve banking. They lend out money they do not possess. We just talked about that. The government... The, gov- the Federal Reserve takes on money, f- takes on treasury bonds and treasury bills, and it puts it on their balance sheet. This effectively increases the monetary supply. Now the treasury has more money without really printing any of it. You have all these different ways of increasing the monetary supply. So if you understood the truth about inflation, you would know who to point the finger at you would know that inflation is only created by a couple of institutions, by government and banks. That's it. Every time the bank lends out money they do not currently possess, that is, that's inflation. So whether it's credit cards, whether it's mortgages, auto loans, personal loans, it doesn't matter. Anytime they lend you money that you don't have, you know, and they don't have it backed up by any cash reserves, it is inflationary. Every time the Federal Reserve takes assets from the Treasury onto its balance sheet, that is inflationary. You see, the Federal Reserve doesn't actually have the authority to print money. They, they effectively kind of works, they just type in a bunch of ones and zeros on a computer, and that's more or less how it works in a very, very, very nutshell. I know it's much more complicated you know, process than that, but in a very, very small nutshell, that, that is how it works. And currently, what the Fed was is doing today is they're buying bonds. They're not, now, they don't have the legal authority to buy bonds and stocks, so what are they doing? They're working with a, a financial institution on Wall Street, BlackRock, I believe that it is, and they're, they're giving money to BlackRock, and BlackRock is effectively going out and buying these bonds on behalf of the Federal Reserve. 
And then when you're talking about stimulus checks and all this kind of stuff, all this money going to different businesses, it's all very, very, very concerning. This is all inflationary. Anytime you create money out of thin air and you increase the supply of money that exists within a market, that's inflationary. And the side effect, the symptom of that underlying disease is monetary devaluation, prices that rise. Now, the idea of general prices that are rising, I mean, largely monetary devaluation doesn't occur consistently everywhere all at the same time, right? And a lot of people, that's what they think of inflation, that it raises the prices of everything, but not always, Not always. It all depends on where that money gets injected, what market that money gets circulated in. You see, in order to have monetary devaluation, in order to have prices that rise, you have to take the money that's created and you have to inject it. You have to circulate it into a particular market. Now, what am I talking about when I say a particular market? So a market could be anything. Okay. If you're going to the grocery store and you're buying milk, Milk is a market, okay? So if you inject more money into, say, milk by increasing the amount of money in that market and you specify it can only be used for milk type of thing, then yeah, you would increase milk prices. And there's also subcategories of these markets, all right? So like if you're in the market for 1% milk or 2% milk or whole milk or whatever, skim milk, those are all subcategories inside of an overarching market, which is milk, right? So that's what I mean when I'm talking about markets. It can be anything. Cars, particular types of cars would be a subcategory of it, but cars in general would be a category. Houses would be a category. Real estate is the overarching market, but a subcategory of that market would be residential homes. That would be a subcategory inside the overarching market. It's a tinier sector of the market is, is probably one of the better ways of thinking about it. So when money gets created, it has to be injected somewhere and somehow that's what has to happen in order for prices to rise, which is always what the inflationists want in order for that to occur, it has to be injected into the economy, into the markets. Now, this is actually one of the reasons, uh, coincidentally enough, why we didn't see hyperinflation when all when a lot of Austrian economists were saying we're going to see hyperinflation back in 2008. You had a lot of Austrian economists say, oh yeah, we're going to see hyperinflation. We're going to see all this kind of stuff. We never really saw that. Why? Because the money wasn't getting circulated into everyday people's hands. Not initially. You see, the money that was being printed was being circulated into the stock market, into the bond market, into assets. It wasn't getting in. It circulated into everyday markets like, like grocery store food items or things of that nature. It wasn't getting circulated in that way. Now, eventually, you if you go ahead and you you print a whole bunch of money and you inject it into the stock market, that money finds its way into the businesses that obtain that money, and then they can turn around and use that money in all kinds of different ways. They can turn around and use it for maybe executive bonuses, maybe they're going to buy back their shares, which if they buy back their shares, then that money then gets handed into the investor's hand because the share price is going to rise and that's going to benefit the investors who sell at the higher prices. And it's always a roundabout way. It's always, but eventually the money does end up into everyday people's hands at the grocery store, at the retail outlet. Eventually, 
the money does end up into everybody's hands. But by the time we get it, it's not valuable anymore. The damage has already been done. The only person who benefits from money printing are the people who get it first. They get it before the money has been circulated. And then when they spend it, that therefore circulates it and injects it into the economy. That's how it works. So in 2008, this is precisely what happened. Quantitative easing came around and the Federal Reserve started, you know, ginning up money out of thin air and they started ejecting into the stock market, into the bond market. Companies obtained that money. That money flowed into investors' hands. That money flowed into executives' hands. That money even flowed into the everyday, to the employees of the, of the companies that it was injected into. Well, these people are going to spend the money. They're not just going to put, you know, stuff it under their mattress. You know, if that's what actually happened, if you just literally printed money and then stuffed it under the mattress and you never circulated it, it would have no effect on the economy whatsoever. You effectively increase the monetary supply, but nobody knows it because the money isn't there. No, no, the money has not officially been circulated. Now, a lot of people will tell you that velocity is a key factor in prices rising. Okay, it's a key factor in monetary devaluation. So what is velocity? Let's kind of, let, let's hit up that topic. Velocity is how fast money changes hands. It's the speed at which money changes hands. And many people, particularly from the Chicago School of Economics, they will tell you that the faster money changes hands, the faster velocity is, prices will rise. Because it kind of represents demand. Demand is so high for a particular item that people are trying to buy it like it's going out of style. They're trying to get their share of it. They're trying to buy what, whatever it is, okay? Whether it's TVs, refrigerators, cars, whatever. People are buying, buy, 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 buy as fast as you can. They're going off the shelf. And they say that when this happens, demand is spiking and ultimately supply can't react. So inevitably prices have to rise to slow down that consumption process, Right? Prices have to rise in order to maintain the supply that they possess. Otherwise, they'll go out entirely, thereby losing business. And what I mean by going out entirely, I don't mean going out as in bankruptcy. I mean, they're going to go out of the supply of the item. They're going to be out of stock. And then they're going to have to wait for, the, for more stock to come in. They're going to be losing business that entire time. They would be better off as efficiently using the limited supply that they have by raising prices to make more money and also subsequently slowing down the consumption of the item. So that's kind of the idea of what happens. And a lot of people say this is velocity. Velocity is a key part of monetary devaluation of prices rising. That is false. That is a misunderstanding of economics. It's not true. The truth is that it is merely, again, once again, velocity is merely a symptom of inflation, which is the increase in the monetary supply. While a sharp increase in demand can increase prices, you see this a lot in like during natural disasters, like in hurricanes and stuff. You kind of saw this in the last couple of hurricanes that happened in the United States. You know, when hurricanes come in and they start flooding the nearby cities and towns, it's not safe to drink water from the water supply. So people go to the grocery store and they, they try to buy as much bottled water as they possibly can. And what happens is that in this situation, because supply and demand is not allowed to occur, a lot of businesses don't want to face the criticisms of raising prices. So what they do is they keep prices the same and this typically ends up in them selling out of the product. 
And it really is, it does not benefit the company very well. It doesn't benefit everyday people very well because it allows people to hoard and to constantly buy more than what they need. And it, it causes the, the, the product to go out thereby meaning that other people don't get access to it. Whereby is if you raise prices for the purpose of profit, not because you're evil, but for the purpose of making money, not only do you slow down how much, how much people are consuming, you also tend to ensure that it gets spread among as many people as possible. It is a natural economic mechanism to ensure that the product gets dispersed out to as many hands as possibly can. And it can slow down the process enough to where they can get resupplied to lower prices in the event that demand is filled. You see, if you have to pay $100 for a case of water bottles, do you think you're going to buy a ton of them? Maybe, maybe you would, but what if it rises again? What if you buy another and then it goes up to $200 or $300 or $400 a case? You're like, ah, you know what? I don't need that many. I'll just, I'll, I'll be good with this one case, right? That gives other people the ability to come in. Now, a lot of people categorize prices rising in a, in a disastrous situation, a very emotional situation, right? It's all emotional, but a lot of people categorize that as price gouging. There's no such term in economics. It's mere, All price gouging is, it's a term that was invented, it was coined by people who wanted to demonize it. Okay, it's very similar to Karl Marx when he coined cap, the term capitalism. It, he just did it so he could demonize it, so he could attack it. So he had something to focus his criticisms on. He had to define it. He had to name it. He had to give it a name in order to attack it. You can't attack something that's faceless. He had to give it a face, right? He had to give it an identity in order to attack it. And that's precisely what price gouging is. It's just a term that's used to demonize a perfectly legitimate economic behavior. But that being said, though, that's not inflation. That's not because an increase in, in the supply of money has occurred. That's because demand has, has sharply spiked because of, it, of a disaster. You see, those events are not caused by inflation because, well, they're not permanent. The minute the natural disaster goes away, things will go back to normal. Inflation, on the other hand, is much, much more permanent unless the printing presses stop. Okay? Unless the printing presses stop, inflation will stick around pretty much to the end of time. But velocity of money is not a reason why prices rise. Again, it is merely a symptom of inflation. You see, the more you increase the supply of money, the more people tend to spend, right? Because the money itself is becoming less and less valuable all the flipping time. So what incentive do you have to save? You have none. The incentive you have, as Milton Friedman put it, is the answer to high inflation is high living. Basically, the answer to inflation is to spend the money and to buy assets that are going to rise in value, that are going to rise with monetary devaluation. That, ladies and gentlemen, is what causes the velocity of money to increase. You see, because the more you continue to do this, the less faith people have that you're going to stop. And eventually it becomes very evident that you're never going to stop and people just start buying, 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 buying. And eventually it causes what many economists have come to, to call the hyperinflation. Eventually that's what it causes. But you know, like I said, you didn't see that in 2008 like everybody thought because it was injected into the stock market, the bond market, and it slowly trickled down to everyday people. However, comma, what were to happen 
if you injected it straight into the hands of the people most likely to spend it. The poor. <laughs> right? Now, when I say poor, you need to understand I'm not talking about financial status. I'm not talking about how much money you have in your bank account. If you don't have a lot and you consistently don't have enough money, you are broke. You're not necessarily poor. You see, being poor, poverty is a mindset. If you have a poverty mindset, then you are constantly focused on things that are external to your life, things that are outside of your realm of control. You're always blaming your life on something that you have no control over because you're trying to offset, whether you realize it or not, you are emotionally trying to offset responsibility for your decisions in your life off to somebody else. You're shifting the blame. That's all you're doing. That's what the poverty mindset is. It's never my fault. It's always somebody else's fault. It's because of racism, sexism, homophobia, whatever. You know, fill in the blank. It's because of somebody else that I can't get what I want. It's because of somebody else that I can't obtain the life that I desire. It's not my, it's never my fault. It can't be because, you know, I don't have a lot of, I, I don't make a lot of money. My income level is not very high. It can't, and I spend all my money on, you know, alcohol and woohoo. It can't be because of that. It can't be because I only make $30,000 a year and I go off and spend my money on, getting my nails done or my hair done or getting a new haircut all the time. Or maybe I go off and I'm always going out to dinner, you know, and getting, and getting food delivered. Maybe I'm going out to dinner. Maybe I'm getting food delivered, which is even more expensive. Either way, can't be because of that. Can't be. Nah, it, it, you know, it can't be because I keep going on vacations and I keep using my credit card and I keep building up my debt. Can't be because of that. Nah, nah, it's not my fault. Are you kidding me? Everybody does that. It's, it can't be it. That is what a poverty mentality has. I can't get what I want in life because somebody else is preventing me from doing it. But these people who are tend to be poor, they also tend to be the biggest spenders. They tend to have the lowest savings because they never accept responsibility for, the way, for their life choices. They never accept the responsibility for where their life has ended up. What have we always said on this show, ladies and gentlemen? Your life is a direct representation of your decisions. If you don't like where your life has ended up, it's because you have made poor choices and you need to make better choices. That's the truth. That's why your life hasn't turned out the way that it is. Your life is a direct representation of the decisions that you have made. That can be an incredibly depressing thing to, to understand and to acknowledge, can also be very empowering. See, it all depends on how you look at that. Because it mean, what it means is that because you got yourself in the mess, you can get yourself out. All it means is you got to make different choices. Now, that's easier said than done. The different choices that you're going to make are probably going to be quite painful, right? Otherwise, you would have made them to begin with. If it was desirable to make those decisions, if it was easy and it wasn't painful and it was pleasurable, you would have already done it. The fact of the matter is some of the best things in life are acquired by doing things that are very, very painful in the moment. Working out. You don't want to work out. You want to sit on the couch and eat whatever you want, right? Eating, eating whatever you want instead of watching carbs and calories or whatever, you know, newfangled diet you're doing. 
You know, whether that's uh, working on a business instead of watching TV, instead of watching the Super Bowl. This last weekend was the Super Bowl. If you actually get into sports, I don't. I didn't even watch it. I heard the Buccaneers won. Kind of, I kind of predicted that. Kansas City Chiefs, from what I understand, are pretty much a, well, they kind of, they're, they're a crappy team. I'm, I'm shocked that they got the Super Bowl at all, frankly. They're very much like the 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 Eagles, right? So my family's all from uh, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, the Philadelphia area, and so they love to watch football and watch the Eagles and stuff. My family's really big into the Eagles and Flyers and, and whatnot. But anyways, with that stated, you know the Eagles are always a, a choke team. They always choke. They always have this good potential, all this potential. They always end up choking. They're a crappy team. Let's face it; they just are. Kansas City Chiefs, I've heard they're the same way, but I don't really watch football that much. I, you know, I can't really speak with a whole lot of authority on the subject. But anyways, that being said, if your life hasn't turned out the way that you want, you got to make better choices. And that does mean absorbing some pain because it's probably going to be painful. Making the right choices can be painful, but we can train our minds to not think of it like that. But it requires us to go through pain before we can get to that point. But that's what you got to do. So, you know, it's it can be a very empowering thing to take responsibility in that way. You know, you notice that, like I said, you can change your life whenever you want. You're, you can turn your life in the direction that you desire. But I digress. If the government starts injecting money into the hands of everyday people through stimulus checks through some app that they create, whatever. What do you think that's going to do? It's going to cause prices to rise very, very quickly. See, a lot of people are already starting to realize that, you know, prices are rising at the grocery store currently. I mean, every time that my wife goes to the grocery store, you know, our bill is pretty high most of the time, a lot higher than it used to be. At least it's, it's noticeably high. And, you know, is that a cause of inflation or is that a cause of just supply chains being disrupted. Well, I think it's a it's a, probably a mixture of both. And we won't really know until everything gets back to normal and whether or not prices normalize or whether they stay high. You see if they stay high then we know that well it was it's in, it's inflation. It's that stimulus money that's being printed and, and injected into people's savings accounts. It's that that's causing the prices to rise. And and you can't deny that hasn't had an effect. It has. When the government prints a whole bunch of money and cuts you a check and deposits it straight into your bank account, what are you going to do with that money? You're going to spend it. And most of you, most of you are going to go out, you're going to spend it on bills, you're going to spend it on utilities, you're going to spend it on food. Maybe you go off and you buy yourself a new couch, a new piece of furniture. That's what most people would do. And by the way, if you are the type of person who went off and spent it on furniture or very unnecessary items... I find, I find that incredibly foolish. That money is going to be devalued. You, you need to, if anything, if there's a couple of things you could do, a couple of wise decisions that you could make, okay? If you're going to take the money, you're not going to give the money back to the government, then there are a few things that you could do. A, you put it in an asset that's going to rise with inflation. This would be one of the best things. And many people may not be in the position to do this, but hey, still silver is high right now in terms of its valuation, but in terms of its prices, but silver is still a, a good purchase, right? Silver topped out at $50 an ounce in 2009. I think it was either 2009, 2012. It doesn't matter. It's, it's not $50 an ounce now. 
it still has room to grow. Not to mention, it's probably if it got up to fifty dollars an ounce, I guarantee you, it's gonna go. It's gonna break that easily. It'll continue to go higher. Silver is still a decent option to go with, if you don't have a lot of money. It it is an asset that will rise relative with inflation, assuming that the money finds its way into the silver market, assuming that the money is circulated into the silver market. Remember, printing the money alone does nothing. Money has to be circulated into the economy, right? Has to be circulated into the market for it to have the effect of rising prices, okay? Keep that in mind. Right now, where's that a lot of that money going? If you're looking at the markets, if you're a trader or investor like me, you know, I'm seeing Bitcoin. Bitcoin is up over $40,000. Do you think that has anything to do with the money that's being printed? Of course it does. Of course it does. There are companies in the stock market. There are companies in general that are buying this. Some of these companies in the stock market were part of the corporations that received a lot of the money printing. And it's going into Bitcoin for now. The money could be taken out and could be deployed elsewhere in the future. But for now, it's going into cryptocurrencies. It's going into Bitcoin. You see, it has to be circulated in order to see the effect. And before we get further into this, I really wanted to do a disclaimer that I am not actually giving any kind of financial advice. This is not financial advice, okay? I'm not a licensed individual. You know, my performance that I've had in the stock market and all that kind of stuff is not even close to being average. And that if you invest your money in the stock market, if you invest your money anywhere else, you are likely to lose most, if not all, of your investment. So there you go. There's your disclaimer. None of this is, is financial advice. This is merely just what I would look to do, okay? But ladies and gentlemen... So you you could buy assets that are going to rise with inflation. That's pretty much what Milton Friedman recommended. Another thing you could do is you could pay your debt off. If you've got a lot of debt, the best way to pay that debt off is with inflated money. That's what the government does. When the government acquires a massive, massive, massive amount of, of debt, this is why an inflationist government, which is one that, which is what we have, a government that loves inflation. They love their socialist programs. They love going into debt for things they can't afford. When you got a government that's in, that's in this mode of operation, the only inevitable outcome is inflation. It's the necessary outcome. It has to happen. It's not optional. Governments the more indebted they become, eventually the more money they have to print to get themselves out of debt. But you see, here's the trick. They print money and then they inject it into the economy by paying off their debt, which then devalues the currency anyway. So they're paying off the money with devalued currency, money that isn't worth anywhere near what it was before. That's the inevitable outcome of inflation. That's the inevitable outcome of it all, of monetary devaluation. That's the inevitable outcome. So paying off your debt with inflated money, money ginned up out of thin air, is absolutely something else that you could do. It, give, it would increase your cash flow. Increasing your cash flow and giving yourself a raise, even if it's two to three hundred bucks, not a bad thing. My wife and I are considering that right now. We don't have a lot of debt, but we do have some. I got one car that, that I still have a loan on. Not much, but I still got a couple grand on there. I'm going to kill that off. I got a medical bill that we got that, again, not a lot of money there. I'm going to kill that off, and I'm going to increase my cash flow by well over $200. I know it's not a massive amount of money, but hey, I'm giving myself a raise. That's not a bad idea. And you know what? The more money the government keeps giving me, the better, you know, the, the better my situation becomes. 
because I know what to do with the money. I've got some silver. I'm adding to my silver portfolio. I'm paying off debt with it. And I'm also stuffing some of it into a savings account. Now, granted, I will say the savings account is probably, it's one of the least beneficial decisions to make because as prices continue to rise, you know, that money won't go far, but you're more incentivized to put it in some kind of an asset that was going to rise with the monetary devaluation and whatnot. That would certainly be better to do that. But, you know, savings is better than spending it on furniture. It's better than save, spending it on worthless things that you don't need. That's just foolish. So that's how you can, you know, handle inflation. But ask this question. You know, inflation is always done. Now, they never really call it inflation because then they know if they called it inflation, then guess what? Like I said before, you would know who to point your finger at. You point your finger at them. You could blame them. You know, but every time they print money, ladies and gentlemen, that is inflation. But wh- but why do they do it? They always do it to help you. It's always for your interest, your benefit. It's always to help income inequality. You know, you hear this argued all the time for universal basic income. Let's fix income inequality, right? Biggest load of BS ever, but it's not a new idea. The idea of giving money to sit down on their butt and do nothing, the idea of of universal basic income, you know, spreading money around, the idea has largely been around for a while now. We call it welfare. Universal basic income just wants to give it to everybody. They want to make everyone dependent on the government, not just the poor, not just the broke. But do you think it would really fix income inequality? Do you think it does? I mean, they've been doing this stuff for a long time. They've been they've been printing money and giving it to, uh, in for the form of welfare checks for quite some time now. Um, long before I was even born, ladies and gentlemen, it's been around for a while. Has it really improved those people's lives? Has it made them rich and wealthy? No. No, it hasn't. If anything, it's only made matters worse. Because what happens when you inject money into the economy and you choose to circulate it by giving it to people who don't know how to manage their own money and who spend every dime that they make. What's really happening? Any of you know? Just off the top of your head, any of you know? I I would hope that some of you do, but really, every time you spend money, you're just giving that money right back to the rich and the wealthy, right back to the ruling class, right? That's what's happening. Every time that money is spent it goes right to the rich and wealthy because the poor don't know how to manage their flipping money. This is what causes wealth inequality today. Okay? I don't think there's anyone out there who would say or even suggest that wealth inequality isn't a problem. But every single time we as a nation or our government tries to come out and every single time they try to fix the problem, they make it worse. Because they're idiots. They're either idiots and they're incompetent or they, they know darn well the effect and they're evil and they want to see the rich to become richer and the poor to become poorer. Either way, it's bad regardless. Whether they're outright evil, whether they're stupid, incompetent, it doesn't really matter one way or the other, but this is what happens. The more money you print and the more money you circulate into the economy, again, by giving it to the people most likely to spend it, which was, it did not actually happen in 2008. It was given to big corporations. It took time to trickle down. I hate using that term, but it's, I think it's, it's very appropriate in this situation. It took time for the money to find its way into the hands of the people that are most likely to spend it. The people on the lowest rung of, of the economic ladder in our nation. You know, when you do that and they start spending it all, it's going to go right back to the rich and the wealthy. 
So for all the clamoring about income inequality, for all of the the vitriol and the anger and the hatred and we how we just have to serve, it wouldn't matter. You could give every single person in this nation a million dollars, which would be terrible if you did, because a million dollars it would no longer be anything special. It's kind of like if you guys, if, I don't know if you guys get into watching Disney movies, all right? Particularly, uh, many of you may not like it because Disney movies are quite progressive, but, you know, especially today, they're, they're, they're going woke. I hate that term. But, you know, older Disney movies, uh, like The Incredibles, I, I personally thought was a pretty cool movie. But, but for those of you who maybe you have kids or maybe you've watched it recently, there was a villain in that movie. Um, yes, this is a spoiler alert. If you haven't seen it now, you, you should have. I mean, it's been out for years and years and years at this point. Uh, so I'm not going to feel bad about spoiling this if you haven't watched the movie. So, you know, if you don't want to hear it, then don't, don't listen. But you'll miss out on what I have to say. But the villain in that movie is called Syndrome. He becomes very wealthy because he's very high, he's highly intelligent. You could say that maybe his superpower is high intelligence, Right? He's smart, unnaturally smart. That's what his superpower was. But he wanted more than that. He wanted like super strength, super speed. So what did he do? He created technology. He created weapons. He, he became very wealthy. He sold a lot of weapons to the military. He eventually ended up creating all this technology. And he had the idea that he wanted not to just sell his tech to governments. He wanted to sell them to everyday people. Because in his own words, I want to make everybody super. I want to give everyone superpowers. And he had a very sinister motive behind this because he understood that, you know why? Because when everyone is super, no one will be. It won't be special anymore. Supply and demand. The more you have of any one thing, the less valuable it becomes. Right? The more you have of, of money... We have a hierarchical list, right? The, the last ep- uh, gosh, I think it was the last episode. The last episode or last two episodes, it was, it was the episodes of last week. I talked about the hierarchical list of diminishing marginal utility. How does it work? Well, very simple. You have a hierarchical list. In the last episode, I described it as you have the most desirable things at the top and the most important things at the bottom. And when you don't have a lot, you pretty much are on the bottom of that list. You're constantly putting money into the most important things in life, you know, Food, water, shelter, things of that nature, right? But then the more money you acquire, you start applying it to maybe items that are more desirable but are are less important. You know, you desire them a lot more, you want them a lot more, but they're not as important in life. So you start to move up on the hierarchical list. That's one way of thinking about it. That's the way I like to think about it. Another way of thinking about it is that the most important things are at the top and the least important things are at the bottom. And when you don't have a lot of money, you spend all of your time, if you're thinking about the list, you spend all of it at the top, the most important things. Again, food, water, shelter, etc. However, the more money you acquire, the least important the money becomes, least valuable becomes, so you start spending on, on the least important items. Right? So you could think of it of a, of a top-down list, or you could think about it the way that I think about it. It doesn't really matter, as long as you understand that that's, what, that's how supply and demand works. So if you were to give a million dollars to everybody... It's not going to be valuable anymore, but it wouldn't really matter even if you did. Income inequality would stay the same. People would love it at first. They would see a massive increase in their life. They'd buy new cars, new homes, and it would skyrocket the value of everything. By the time the money has circulated through the economy, by the time the damage has been done, you won't be able to live that life unless they continue to give that money to you. And they would have to progressively give you more and more and more. And eventually what it would do, it would destroy the currency. That's what would happen. It would absolutely destroy the currency. The currency would no longer be valuable anymore 
at that point. But where does the money go? Where did it go? It went all right back into the rich and the wealthy. Every time the money gets printed, it goes back to the rich and the wealthy because people don't know how to save money. They don't know how to manage their money. They pay the rich and the wealthy by buying the goods and services that that they are enticed to buy instead of paying themselves first. How do you pay yourself? You pay yourself through savings. You pay yourself through investments that increase in value, that maintain value, right? It's a store of value is another way of saying it. You pay yourself by maybe investing it into a business so you can control the source of your income. So you have more control over where your income's coming from and how much money you're getting paid. Ladies and gentlemen, this is, this is how you pay yourself. If you, re- if you would read a really, really great personal finance book called The Richest Man in Babylon, it actually recommends that 10% of everything that I make is mine to keep. And, that you, and basically what it's saying is that you need to save 10% of your income. Now, I don't know. It doesn't really specify whether that's 10% of your take-home pay or whether that's 10% of your gross pay, so net pay or gross pay or whatever. It doesn't really specify. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. But that's what it says. They says you need to pay yourself 10% after every single check or every single month or whatever. Now, that's a subjective percentage. Some people say 5%. Some people say more than 10%. It doesn't really matter. Everybody has a percentage they like to operate off of. Ideally, you just need some savings. You, you need some. You know, you need some for emergency purposes, but don't put all your money into savings because, because of inflation and monetary devaluation. You need to be putting your money into things to actually grow. For me, I like to put my money in silver. I'm, go- I'm toying around with the idea of starting to put my money into cryptocurrencies, not necessarily Bitcoin. Although I do have a little bit of money into Bitcoin, although I don't really actually own the Bitcoin. It's really more in a fund that is uh, th- that rises and falls based off Bitcoin's value. I don't actually own any of the Bitcoin. But with that said, you know, I don't know. I've thought about buying some Ethereum. I thought about buying some, you know, some Tether, which is basically a cryptocurrency that that rises and falls with the dollar. Basically, it's it's pegged to the dollar. So the only reason I would have that is it would be my, my launching pad. It would be my starting point. I'd have it in Tether. And then I would exchange the money that's in Tether in and out of other different cryptocurrencies. And that's kind of how I would operate. But I haven't done that yet. But that's how I would do it. If I want to try to build a hedge against inflation, I would put it in assets that I think are going to rise with inflation. Now, gold and silver are not perfect hedges against inflation, Right. I mean, after 2012, after they spiked due to the financial crisis of 2008, for years, they did nothing but fall. Why? Because the inflated money started going elsewhere. The inflated money started to move on. You know, gold and silver are very much fear and greed assets. So when the economy starts to crash and starts to feel unstable, people will inject money into silver and gold. But when things start to stabilize and sentiment starts to recover, they take it out and they put it back in the stock market. They put it back in the bond market. That's generally how it works a lot of times, or at least that's how it can work. I'm not saying it works like that all the time, but that's how it can work. Okay. It's important to keep that in mind. Now, now, granted, during the financial crisis, I think it's important to state that when the money was flowing out of the stock market, it was flowing out of gold and silver too. Everything burns in a market crash, ladies and gentlemen. Everything burns, okay? And that's precisely what was happening when it came to the stock market, the bond market. That's precisely what happens when it came to gold and silver. Everything burns. Money flows out of those markets and your dollar starts to become more valuable against everything that's falling in value. And effectively what happens is that 
all prices have to fall in order to incentivize people to buy again. So you keep selling, prices continue to fall, yada, 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 you know, so, so on and so forth. But eventually, money comes back in when sentiment recovers. And then you see a rise again, like, like you did before. But as stocks continue to rise in 2009 and onwards, Bitcoin, uh, gold and silver only continue to rise until 2012. And then they started falling because sentiment had recovered. It's three years after the financial crisis. People started to take that money, that the inflated money out, and they started flowing it elsewhere. So it's important to keep that in mind. Okay, the, the, it's, it's really important. But the idea is that if enough money gets printed, money will find its way into almost any everything. And that, that is the general concept and whatnot. But anyways, ladies and gentlemen, we are at the end of the episode. You know, I hope you guys enjoyed this one. You know, I thought it was pretty informative and whatnot. I very much love talking about it. I do apologize if I bounced around a lot. So I do apologize if it was a little confusing. I, I really hope that it wasn't. I tried to explain stuff very in, in great detail and whatnot, but I thought it was very, very valuable. I hope you guys really, really enjoyed it a lot. I, I, I certainly did. So that being said, ladies and gentlemen, hey, let's do a, qu- a couple quick things. First and foremost, it, again, the ways in which you would want to respond to money printing, again, you can invest in assets that you can put that money into assets that are going to rise with monetary devaluation. You can pay debt off or you could put that money into savings. Now, I'm not giving you financial advice, but if it was me, what I'm doing is I'm taking a certain amount of that money, I'm putting it in silver and I'm even going to contemplate putting some of that into cryptocurrencies. That's what I'm doing. Well, if you're interested in getting access to gold or silver, then hey, go check out Money Metals Exchange. It's, you know, Money Metals Exchange is a great company. It's one of my favorite companies going buy gold and silver. Absolutely love them. I've been using them for a long time. They're a really, really great company. If you guys are interested in getting access to them, go check them out. I'll post the link in the description below. That link, however, is not an affiliate link. So you got to listen. If you want to help support the show, and you want, you'll get a free coin in doing so if you're going to make a purchase anyways. If you're going to make a purchase, you want to, you want to help support the show, you'll get a free coin and I'll get a free coin as well. But when you check out, mention my name, Matthew Spaziti, and you'll get the free coin, I'll get the free coin. But if you just click on the link, that's just a normal link. It's not an affiliate link, okay? This is a, refer, they call this a referral program, not an affiliate program. So if you're interested in that, you know, go check them out. You know, if you're, if you're thinking about buying it anyways, you want to help support the show, that'd be a great way to do it. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to be it for the episode. Hope you guys enjoyed it. If you did, make sure to like and subscribe and, you know, make sure to share it. You know, we come here. We survive here. We are constantly growing here on the show and we grow because of you, because you guys get out there and you share. If you're on social media, hit the share button. If you're wherever you are, it doesn't matter. Hit the share button. Share it with some of your friends. If you, you got some friends that are interested in these same ideas of financial empowerment, financial freedom, libertarianism, Austrian economics, free markets. If you're interested in that kind of stuff, odds are you got friends that are. And if you do, hey, maybe uh, shoot them a link over to the show. Maybe share the show with them and, and let them check it out. Let them see what they think of it. So if you guys are loving it, please share the show. Also, if you guys are loving the show, please do me a favor. I know it's asking a lot of you guys because I I know that you guys are busy and everything, but look, if you guys love this, I need you to do me a favor, okay? If If you're loving the show, I need you to not only come here every week, I need you to leave me a rating and review on iTunes. I'm asking you as a personal favor to me, okay? We need to accumulate more reviews for the show, on iTunes. If we do, the more reviews that we get, the more visible the show becomes. And ultimately, we can get on rankings and stuff and just more people can be made aware of the show. So if you guys love this show, 
then please go give me a rating and review on iTunes. It's incredibly, incredibly helpful. Uh, you would be helping me out a lot by doing that. So if you guys would do that, I'd greatly appreciate it. Also, and last but not least, if you want to support the show financially, then the best way to do that, ladies and gentlemen, is to join the Matthew Spazzitti Elite Group and get access to the Liberty Informant. Ladies and gentlemen, the Matthew Spazzitti Elite Group is effectively the fan group for the show. I put it behind a paywall to effectively to keep out the trolls and whatnot, but it's a great group. If you are interested in Austrian economics, if you're interested in trading, investing, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, this is one of the best ways that you guys can support the show. You can subscribe, get access to a great group, and you guys can ultimately come together and help me create this community of individuals who all want to become financially free and are passionate about the same things. You know, if what is coming in the future is what I think it is, then you are not going to be able to survive on your own. You're not going to be able to have your own island and and live by yourself. You're going to need help. Then who better the help than like-minded individuals, other libertarians, other free market and liberty-oriented people. That is who I want to receive my help from. And I also want to receive my help from people who want to become financially free, who want to take control of their life and the source of their income. So if you guys want to get support the show, it's a great way to do it. Click on the link in the show notes page. It'll say get access to the Liberty Informant. Click on that link and get subscribed. You will also get access to Liberty Informant, which is a paid subscription that I do where I basically come in and I read articles from the Mises Institute, the Foundation for Economic Education, and the American Institute for Economic Research, as well as Intellectual Takeout. And gosh, as that list gets bigger, I'm not going to be able to go through each and every one of them. But ladies and gentlemen, I read from these from these institutions, okay? The, the information is free. If you've got time to read, you can go read them on your own. But I thought it would be helpful to record these episodes, to turn them into audio files, so you guys get to listen to them instead of having to read them. I try to take all that information from all those different websites, put it all in one location, and I'm also giving you guys access to what I'm reading throughout the week. So if you guys want to know what I'm reading, if you guys want to know the information that I'm consuming and the research that I'm doing, this is part of that. All right. So if you guys are interested, you, you think you'd get a lot of value out of it. That is an added bonus to my elite group, the Matthew Spazzitti elite group. <laughs> so anyways, if you guys want to financially support the show, that's one of the best ways to do it. And uh, I'd be forever appreciative. I mean, I really would. It would be the ultimate compliment to me you know, by saying that you love what I'm doing. It would give me the ability to come in here and do this on a full-time basis, and it would ultimately allow me to not only spread this message, but also to provide this great value in the show to you. So, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to be it for the episode. Hope you guys enjoyed it. And yeah, hey, I'll see you guys in the next episode. As always, know the risks, plan accordingly, and have a great day.